Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. Hope you're having a fabulous week. And welcome back to Wikipedia. I'm Mickey Willardin, obviously the host of the show, and I get to chat to so many awesome people. And this week on the show, I sat down again with my mate, Paul Lawson, and we talk all about Hit Science, which is Paul's textbook and course that he has developed alongside his colleagues that help educate coaches, exercise physiologists, anyone who's interested in how HIT science can be used properly to enhance and optimize training of athletes. So that's such a fun conversation. We also talk about Athletica AI, which is Paul's artificial intelligence informed training platform whereby you can sign up and get some really individualized coaching advice without actually having to have a coach which it doesn't take the place of a coach as Paul and I talk about but it definitely provides a service for people who really want to help enhance and optimize their training so we talk about Athletica AI and then we also talk about any updates on COVID-19 and metabolic health and if you recall in the third episode of Wikipedia. Paul, Phil Maffetone and I have a really good conversation into that paper which was um, really awesome and if you didn't catch it, if you're still catching up, that episode was published, was the third published in Wikipedia on uh, I think mid-November 2020 so absolutely go back and listen to that if you haven't already listened to it. So for those of you who need a bit of reminding or are unfamiliar, Paul Lawson is the former lead of physiology for the New Zealand Olympic athletes and adjunct professor of exercise physiology at AUT University. However, now he is based in Canada where he contributes to research studies in his academic capacity and is the co-founder of the online course Hit Science, which is also a textbook, as I mentioned where thousands of people are learning how to apply the science of HIIT training to achieve better sport outcomes. He is a renowned specialist in that high intensity interval training, low carb diets, ketosis, heart rate variability, thermal physiology, health and artificial intelligence. And we touch on most of those topics in today's episode. So there is definitely something for anyone interested in health, nutrition, well-being and artificial intelligence. And he is, as I'm sure you appreciate and know, he's an accomplished athlete in his own right. And we sort of kick off our conversation by him sort of telling me a little bit about his background and how he got interested in the area. And it sort of came from a failed triathlon attempt. And he is a coach as well. So he coaches both professional and age group athletes. And you can find Paul over on his website, www.paullawson.com. That's L-A-U-R-S-E-N dot com. So please enjoy my conversation that I had with Paul Lawson. Oh, kia ora, Prof. How are you? 
I'm doing, I haven't heard those words in a long time. I'm doing well, thanks, Mickey. Yeah, QR to you too. <laughs> yeah, Tino, it's interesting, eh? Because for so long, you were just resident of New Zealand. You just showed me a Kiwi passport. Yes. But right now, you are domiciled back in, you know, I want to say, I can't even, you've got in that little kind of ski town in, in yeah. is it BC? Yeah, you got it. You got the province. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah. the ski town is called Revelstoke. Revelstoke, there you go. Actually, I was Stoke. just thinking, yeah, yeah. Revelstoke, brilliant. It's a and, place to hang out, that's for sure. <laughs> that's great. And cross-country skiing for you right now, Paul, or is it, oh, actually. Uh, no, that's your, that's yours. No, we're mate. mountain biking. Actually, Can I didn't you... tell you about this, but I had a, um, I had a massive stack um, mountain biking the other day and yeah. um, went off a kicker of a jump. Uh, I'd love to say that I pulled a nice tail whip and, and, and all. But I actually, uh, I, I didn't, I, I landed poorly oh. offline on, th- bro- uh, on a rock, basically on my back, <sighs> broke three ribs, um, compressed T4, five, and did a, did a lacerated kidney. So I was very lucky, Mickey. Um, so that was, yeah, that was nine, 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 ten days ago. Oh my God, Paul, how are you feeling? That is crazy. I feel a lot better now, but I tell you, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a broken rib. It is yep. not a fun injury to have, though. Like, sleeping is, is not, not fun. But it, no, I'm do- definitely, I'm starting to feel better now after about 10, 10 days and whatnot. So. Oh my God, ribs are the most painful thing. So I've had a cracked rib like when I was very young, but my, more recently is, the, is getting something happen to the intercostal cartilage mm-hmm. of the ribs and they're mm-hmm. just breathing like impossible to breathe like the most painful sort of experience see those kind of injuries i mean not that i need any reason to sort of not get on a mountain bike because i could find all the reasons in the world like it just doesn't happen for me but (laughs) what you've just described really affirms why i never go near anything like that like because then that would stop me being able to run pool and then we'd have so much fun though so i mean i'm gonna i'll definitely be back on it uh as soon as i can and what as soon as it's you know um, realistic to get, to get back on there. Um, yeah. Oh, that's I, good. I just, I just love it. Um, I, I actually, this year has been a terrible year for in, injuries. Uh, and in the, in, in the winter I was, uh, I did my ACL as well when I was back country skiing. Um, so it's, yeah, and I've got, I'm scheduled for surgery in November, which is oh. you know, again, a, a bit, bit of a bummer. So it hasn't been a good year for injuries <laughs> for me, but, um, it's, you know, with that, that, uh, that enables me to do lots of, lots of other work like podcasting and working on some other projects that I'm sure we'll talk about today. Well, there you go. There is always a silver lining. I did mm-hmm. actually hear on a most recent podcast that you, when you say you're starting to get these injuries, I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's an age thing. Because yeah. Paul, despite your youthful appearance, you've you've been several times <laughs> around the sun. There's probably something there for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, just before we sort of kick off, and I because I really want to talk to you today about your background, how you got into HIT. I want to talk about HIT because I'm super interested in it and its application for people like me, mm-hmm. endurance, trail running, ultra endurance, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, talk about Athletica AI. Um, but your, with regards to your injury, are you on the collagen and vitamin C? Are you on that protocol? You know what? I'm, I'm not, Mickey. Um... I probably should. I, I need to. I need to talk to you about that. I'm. I'm a little bit of a. You know. I think you know. I'm. I'm an LCHF. Yeah. Kind of with a carnivore slant. So I'm very yeah, interesting. Yeah. And 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 
Yeah, I mean, I hate even using those sort of terms, those camps. Um, I really like Rob Wolf's uh, sort of standpoint in his last book that he did with um, The Sacred Cow. And he, he yeah. says, really, we should be um, nutrivores. And so, yes. yeah, I'm really just, uh, yeah, I really just try to make sure that I've got the, uh, the maximum nutrients that I'm getting. But, and um, yeah, I'm not, I wonder if I'm, I'd be depleted in, in vitamin C. I'm not sure. I don't. Well, just because it's, it, it's more about the fact that, the amino acids that are in, that are in the collagen peptides conditionally mm-hmm. essential, particularly glycine, mm-hmm. and so because it is part of our overall kind of musculoskeletal tissue, and it helps form all of it. Like they've the studies around collagen and sort of wound healing and and things like that show that there is the case. Sure, they're case studies, so mm-hmm. it's not like clinical trials, and they're sort of petri dish or cell culture studies, but it does show. A, an enhanced healing when you take 15 grams of collagen plus about 50 milligrams of vitamin C together mm-hmm. and you take it about an hour before you do any sort of movement around that joint area because that then allows the amino acids to sort of peak in the bloodstream and mm-hmm. so then of course you do some movement in the area so however you might move around your ribs and whatnot and that yeah. will sort of direct those amino acids to that site of injury and that vitamin C is taken up into um, uh, the cells and used to help with that collagen sort of synthesis and you know it's yeah and again it's case study stuff you mentioned your ACL and there was a really good case study around a I believe it was a footballer who who used this protocol plus a particular rehab protocol I'll send you the paper I'll try and find it again I think I know the researcher as well in he's in the he's in Bond University right and he's yeah 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 Yeah. it's the one he's yeah yeah he's he's called me for because we're a an ACL capital basically in the world with, with all the skiing injuries. And yeah, 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 we're, yeah, we're, we're looking at potentially collaborating on, uh, yeah, with, with that. Cause it's basically a brace method of, so post ACL injury, you put it in, put your knee in a brace at, you know, for X amount of time at this angle, X amount of time at this angle, X amount of time at this angle. Yeah. And lo and behold, it, um, it regrows, which is never been shown before. Amazing, um, right? Yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, and if I had found that out, you know, right after my injury, as opposed to six months later, I would have been a candidate for it. But now I've, now it's, you know, I haven't regrown an ACL, and I've got to go have a, have the surgery to reinsert a, a hamstring tendon in there instead. So that's really cool. Yeah. Well, so I'll, well, I'll send you just the details about that protocol. Like the thing is, even in within your Nutrafol diet there's always room for more collagen. Like you're not mm. going to, and I don't think you, it's certainly not going to do you a disservice at least. And lots of people, and, and again, it's all anecdotal as well, but mm. a lot of people say that it really helps them, um, uh, helps joint pain, something for you to consider given your advanced years. And mm. uh, <laughs> yeah, just kidding. No, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and just with their, you know, injury and stuff. And vitamin C has long been known to be, like essential for healing tissue and stuff. Linus Pauling, yeah. like the hot, like this is, have you, have you been on the Linus Pauling sort of site? It's now sort of part of a university. I haven't, no. And it's a little bit, uh, not, I, I'm not going to say conspiracy theorists because it's not, it's just that there are people who disbelieve that vitamin, that something like vitamin C could be as effective as what Linus Pauling suggested it was. But mm-hmm. again, so much like we talked last time about, COVID-19 and about we didn't talk about treatment 
in and around sort of reducing the severity of symptoms as much as we did about metabolic health, which is something that I'd like to revisit sort of your thoughts at the end of what we discussed with um, HIT and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, just its utility in so many different areas in human health. Like, I don't know, vitamin C for the win as well, just in general. Nice, nice, yeah. Um, who is this? Isn't it Sean Baker is the carnivore guy? And yeah, yes. I was listening to a podcast with him and Ivor Cummings. And um, yeah, he was, you know, he was talking about that too. And it's like, he's, yeah, he, well, he feels he's in pretty good health and those that, you know, he helps. Um, and where would the, I guess, where would the vitamin C kind of be coming from? I have no idea, in a carnivore kind of diet. Have you ever, like if people like that are getting success on that diet, how, how does that, how can they be healthy if um, there's no vitamin C in that? I'm not sure, or maybe, maybe there is vitamin C. I, again, I don't know if there's vitamin C in, in meat per se. Yeah, do you know, that's a really interesting question, Paul, because, and I wish that I had, was able to answer that because somewhere in my mind as well, I've heard there is something about the maybe it's it, there's something about the meat that's that's not vitamin C per se, or there is vitamin C, but it breaks down. It's just the way you eat the meat that is mm-hmm. different. I don't know. Or the requirement for vitamin C is lower because you're only eating meat is potentially some other avenue by which you're not running deficient. I think that's something. Mm-hmm. Also, lime juice. Maybe they incorporate some lime juice in their Nutrivore diet. Oh, I, so, I do do that, actually. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe that's an avenue with which yeah. the, the the avenue the, with which they get it. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I was reflecting on your your comments about the, the the amino acids and the collagen, and that's like so. Liver is probably a staple in my diet, and I know that you know a lot of, a lot of people will sort of frown on that. You develop a yeah. taste for it, but you know we've got uh, yeah, I've got a source of free free um, like free range cows and whatnot. That's, that's just close to my house. And awesome. uh, yeah. And, and again, you look at Rob Wolf's um, book, the sacred cow, like that's the, the highest density of, of nutrients ultimately yeah, um, is, is yep. that liver. It's just, it's ranks. Like it just, it, it almost doubles, I think beef, uh, which is high there as well. So um, yeah, that, that and, and um, oysters or sardines are kind of, kind of staples in my diet. So you get the megas as well and zinc. That's but, awesome. Um, and the other thing, Paul, is if you um, like, so the, the collagen is sort of forms part of that gelatinous part of the meat. And so mm-hmm. any joint that you eat, mm-hmm. uh, bone, something which, and um, of course, chicken skin, that's yep. going to have it. Fish skin from your yep. like sardines. Sardines, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the little bones as well is the other yeah. way you get your collagen. Yeah. Um, but even like gnawing on bones, I don't know if you necessarily do that. Oh, yeah. I, sure. yeah, yeah. So I'm do so I. And, <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny, like very husband, obviously yeah. laughs yeah. at me because I'm like sitting there with this like chicken drumstick and yeah. you know, for the most part, it should look like a bone when you finish with it. But mine just looks like a bit of a stick. Cause I'm like, Oh, you know, that bit, that's soft enough to eat. That's soft enough to eat. That's how you get those, uh, those, uh, that additional collagen in just through the food that you eat. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm doing all those things. I'm yeah, I guess what I'm not I'm not do, I'm not mainstreaming, you know, um vitamin C pills or you know oranges or um Yeah. yeah it would it, like it could be worth and particularly post your ACL surgery as well just getting that supplement and just okay. again, nothing to lose with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Thank you. So, Paul, um, interesting sort of where your diet has evolved to now compared to where I've heard you describe it started. And I just want to sort of, I want you to sort of relay how you sort of got into the field of your hit research, in part because I've heard you describe yourself as a bit of a tr- a failed triathlete back yeah. in the day. Like I'm thinking, it was it early 2000s or late 90s or yeah, no, like, it was late, late 80s, early early 90s. Yeah, mate, oh. <laughs> you are old. Oh, yeah. no, I'm just I'm just kidding. So yeah. you know, can you sort of take us back to? the time where you were like really interested in, in triathlon and succeeding and sort of how that then developed your interest into your um, research pool. Take us back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah sir. So I, I mean, I grew up as a young, young boy following my dad around when he was quitting smoking and uh, running marathons instead. So I just developed an aerobic engine from a young age, um, you know, and then, yeah, I guess really got interested in triathlon and triathlon was just, uh, in the eighties, it was just starting to become a little bit more mainstream and not at, well, it was still looked at upon as being pretty crazy, but, and then there was, um, you know, in that time as well, there was talk that it was one day going to be in the Olympics. So I really got that bug and wanted to, wanted to, you know, maybe be representing, you know, my, my country as a, mm. as a young person there at that, at that point. And then that dream, you know, uh, just never, never manifested. So failed athlete. Um, and I just was, that just, I, I guess, sparked the, the whole curiosity for science. Like, well, I've got to be able to, st- I got to study this then, um, first of all, to better my own per- you know, potential performance, but then also as a career to, to help others in the future as well. And then that led me to my, to, to all my different sort of studies. And then, yeah, I guess that led me to my PhD at the university of Queensland. I, I won a scholarship, um, over to, to UQ. And the question that I was, that I came up with, uh, was what's the best, I guess, uh, high intensity interval training strategy to get the most bang for buck. And that was the whole foundation of my PhD. And I looked at manipulating the different factors, like, um, you know, how hard the exercise bout should be, how long the exercise bout should be of a hit session, how long the recovery should be, how, how long the, um, or how, you know, intense the recovery period should be all the different facts. I mean, there's, there's almost an infinite number and we, you know, kind of made a stab at that throughout the thesis mm. and, and that, that, you know, that, uh, that continued to evolve after the PhD, because then I met my colleague, Martin Bescheid, uh, in, uh, and he, he came and visited me in, uh, in Perth when I was a prof at, U- at ECU. And he was kind of on the same question, except he was taking it from the, the, the team sport aspect Mm. and long story short, we kind of combined forces in a bunch of research for a long time and then put a couple lit reviews together that, um, that, that came in and, uh, eventually evolved into our, into our book, which is the science and application of high intensity interval training. Always gonna have the prop, Mickey. I love it. I love it. It's like a doorstop. It's massive. Who would have thought that hit something like hit, which is so prevalent now in terms of just you know how people understand kind of training approaches and stuff, has evolved from research that you've done, and it now kind of exists as this massive like textbook, Paul. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, for sure, too, because it's the science and application. That's the the whole thing. So and this is what we're always we're always saying. So there's a lot of science um, that goes into 
into hit in terms of understanding how you can pull the different levers of the intensity uh, duration recovery um, stuff but then we as we always say context is is uh, context is God really like it's the it's the key aspect it's like sometimes you know you can't fit a square peg into a round hole right like you've got like certain elements of hit just aren't going to fit in in certain um certain programming puzzles ultimately yeah. like certain certain contexts they just don't fit yeah. so so in the 20 we have got like 20 different uh um i guess practitioners that come in and they tell us how they apply hit in their context yeah yeah um, yeah as expert practitioners and coaches so yeah, yeah that's 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 why it's such a thick book yeah so when you started paul did you actually think you were going to find the answer and there would be one answer like this is the way <laughs> no, I, well maybe when i yeah i think yeah i think i did i think if i can actually reflect on uh i started my phd in 2000 so yeah t- you know 21 years ago i guess i probably did think there'd be sort of a little bit more of an ultimate uh, yeah. answer and then it was yeah it was like well quite the rabbit hole it's like oh wow there's a lot more to this than with than meets the eye yeah for sure so if we just sort of um i guess take a step back what is hit like i've heard like as i understand it this is something that's been that was developed like even though it's sort of popularized now it was developed almost 100 years ago yeah totally we've got a like chapter one really just goes into the history of it and it's important to recognize because it's been around since the like the 1900s early 1900s uh where coaches were experimenting with it with their athletes to um and to get success that's really where it sort of started in the area of track and field yeah but i guess it's you know continued on and but more mainstream in the last maybe only just 10 years really Mm. it with the you know the i guess the the media and the and the internet and the crossfit um you know um, evolution or rise up and, and that's the that it's just it's thought of as different things now it's kind of thought of as the you know um doing push-ups and yeah uh you know doing doing mixing strength training with it and doing you know crossfit exercises and stuff and that's that's not typically that's not what hits all about and that's certainly not what we focused on in the boat in the book the we we've really gone into what like metabolic conditioning yeah so how can you use how can you pull the levers of high intensity interval training to get the most bang for buck for your session, Mm -hmm. the most appropriate bang uh, bang for buck for your session uh, from a metabolic standpoint, more than anything. We do touch on a lot of the neuromuscular strength uh, aspects. That's part of our puzzle, but yeah, it's mostly metabolic, aerobic, anaerobic sort of systems. Yeah. Um, Because yeah, that's the, I think that's probably our forte and that's the fourth, that's really what we focused on in our research. Yeah, for sure. And obviously I've come across it in both of those arenas, like just in that sort of uh, popular kind of fitness space, you know, it is very on trend and has been actually for a couple of years and, you know, hits what you do to get more bang for your buck with regards to fat loss and strength gain. And you, you know, you've only got 10 minutes do this hit activity, but the type of hit that you're describing is much more oriented towards becoming better, faster, stronger in the sport that you play, isn't it? And it's mm-hmm. quite specific there, as I understand it, quite specific protocols for different sports. Would that be right? Yeah, well, uh, you know, we take a physiology first type approach, yeah. a context uh, and a context uh, first approach. But, you know, that's like the physiological target should form the the crux of, of where you're trying to kind of line up 
in your in your program yeah so and, and yeah they like so how hard you go on a on a session uh, really and and how long uh, at least in terms of the work about that really dictates that um you know i, I guess the biggest uh, response that you're going to first sort of get. Yeah. So maybe I've lost your question. No, 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 sure. that's good. No, because are there six different types of hit, Paul? Yeah, six different hit types, we call them. Yeah. Can you sort of outline them for me? Is that all right? Yeah. Sure. So the first, yeah, so this is, this is where it gets, you know, we get a little bit into the weeds with the, the, the different hit types, but basically how you pull those levers and let's call them three levers. Yeah. Let's just introduce the three key levers. So we've got an aerobic lever yep. lever, right? So how, um, how much aerobic metabolism you want to add to the session, mm-hmm. right? So think about your heart, uh, your cardiac output, think about, um, you know, causing your muscles to develop more mitochondria so that they're fatigue resistant mm-hmm. and burning more fat. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of your aerobic, um, that's your aerobic lever. And then you've got the anaerobic lever, mm-hmm. which is the second one. Mm-hmm. And that is, think about the muscle, like the burning feeling that you get. Think about the, the blood lactates that's spilling out. Think about the sugar that's being burnt. Mm-hmm. And then the third lever is the CrossFit one that we kind of spoke on. It's, it's really the, the neuromuscular response. Mm-hmm. So think about maximal recruitment. Think about muscle damage that you might get and soreness lingering. Those are the three, if we simplify HIT, um, those are the sort of the three targets that we can get. Now, depending on how you skin the cat, we like to say sometimes with our, with our HIT pro, our programming, depending on how you uh, form the session, the format, you'll get different degrees of aerobic oxidative, anaerobic glycolytic, or neuromuscular response. Mm. So type one is just an, you're just pulling the aerobic lever. Mm-hmm. Type two, you're pulling the aerobic lever and the neuromuscular lever. Mm-hmm. Type three, you're pulling the aerobic lever and the anaerobic lever. Type four is all guns blazing. So it's a, it's like a massive, uh, you know, sprint workout with muscle damage. And type five is it, without an aerobic co- component, so it's just lactic and and um, and neuromuscular. And type six is just a strength or speed workout where there's no aerobic or anaerobic kind of components. So very short and sharp. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gym kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so with that, Paul, like I said, if I think about running, obviously because that's the sport that I do. What are the most important types for someone like me who is in who is a I'm gonna say a wannabe ultra runner? It's so funny how you just don't own what you've already like. I've done like someone would say, No, you're you're an ultra runner because I've done like a handful of events over the marathon distance, but I still don't quite own it. Well, so um, my most recent distance is 50k. Cool. But I do have it. So in my calendar, I've yet to enter, but I'm about to enter the that race again in Topor, and it's very much a runner's course. Like it's very, you know, it's a, it's a great one if you enjoy running because it's not a lot of hiking, it's not a lot of vert. Um, but I have actually, and I haven't really said much about this yet because I'm very good at entering something and then like uh, pulling out. So mm-hmm. I've sort of kept it a little bit quiet, but I have entered the Tadawera 100. Um, in February, actually. Mm, nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay. 
Yeah. Awesome. So I'm really curious how you, I mean, if you reflect on your 50, how does another 50 feel or to, to your brain, to your mind? This, it feels overwhelming. So, you know, like, so this is, yeah. I, I, I in fact have scheduled a course with um, Simon, uh, sorry, a, a talk with Simon Marshall, who wrote yeah. the book, The Brave Athlete, because right. the, the problem is, is that I, I, uh, my, my problem is always in my head, right? So it's a couple of things. Not only is it the fact that I enjoy running and given the opportunity, I will overdo it because that mm-hmm. is, you know, but I, I have gotten smarter over the years. Um, but I do know that that is something which I have to be mindful of. More is not always better. Um, equally, though, I can talk myself out of anything. It's super easy to, to justify um, not actually going through with something just as much as it's so easy to on a lovely kind of Tuesday afternoon in the sun hit enter on any sort of what then seems to be crazy idea uh because you're you know you're just sitting around so of course the idea of doing 100k ah sweet I'll just train for that be fine you know I mean I think I can do it but it's just actually getting to the start line and feeling as fit and ready as I as I know I could and it's getting that right balance. And is it applicable to do HIT in, in these types of events as part of the build-up and training? What, what are your thoughts? Oh, definitely. Most, most definitely. For mm. sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, and again, I get a lot of this insight in, uh, from my colleague, Martin, Martin Bescheid, who's uh, done a lot of these ultras. And for sure, he would use HIT training to, um, uh, and also uh, a lot of strength training as well yep. to prepare for a lot of the downhill aspects, oh, right? And the yes. muscle damage that you're going to get. Yes. So you'd have aspects of the hit training for, for both. You'd be working to, um, certainly working on your, your, your metabolic stuff. Yeah. Not as much the anaerobic, I don't yep. think, but, but sort of like type two, we call it, um, sessions. So where there's an aerobic and a neuromuscular, those are going to be your key your key elements you would want to, if I was thinking about it from a physiological standpoint, I would want to have a maximal, maximal aerobic system. Mm -hmm. So ability to burn fat all day for an ultra, Mm -hmm. um, big, big engine as well. So big, big power in your, um, in your cardiac output. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would have to have a really strong chassis. Um, so really good shocks and, and, uh, you know, um, shocks and springs on my chassis and you get that through your neuromuscular, um, so your downhill running, Mm. your, your, um, your strength training as well in the gym too, so that your muscles are really going to be able to handle that repeated eccentric loading ultimately that you're going to, you're just inevitably going to have to handle for that, that length of time. Yeah. It's interesting. yeah. And I'll just like the final thing on that, again, back to Martin, Martin describes two experiences. It's, I think it's a, he did a 150 ultra and it was on this Island. I forget. It's his famous, famous, um, famous one in uh, one of the French islands. I believe I can't remember the name, but he describes his experience one time, not doing any of the hit stuff and mm-hmm. the neuromuscular training that I, that I uh, mentioned, he was basically, he was out for, like a week after he just yeah. he couldn't walk for a week. He yeah, was yeah. just, and then when he did all of the hit and the strength sort of training for it, that I'm just, that I described, he was pretty much walking around the next day. No, no problem. So it was, Amazing. It was yeah, like, yeah, night and day. Yeah. Do you know the, the most recent, um, the most recent experience is that 50 K where there wasn't a lot of that, um, eccentric sort of down, um, or load, but, 
prior to that I'd done the Tarawera 60 and mm. I hadn't trained that was the second time that I'd done it and I hadn't trained a lot of downhill and I really noticed because I was the last 15k is completely runnable and it's mildly undulating is how I would describe it could not run because yeah. my even then as early as that I had I damaged my quads from all of the eccentric work so it didn't it wasn't even like a case of delayed it was like rapid onset muscle soreness it was roms not doms god it was and, and that was a lesson to me it was like i really need to do something different next time going into it because of course for a trail for trail running so you've got the the load with regards to the number of hours you need to spend training but also it's, you know, how do you add hit in or something in that is going to protect you from injury? And obviously hit overall will protect you from injury because you become a stronger athlete. But at the time, I'm like, if I add intensity to to duration, that's like, for someone like me, that's a sure recipe for injury. So how do you protect yourself against that? Because that's my concern. Mm-hmm. Well, you just, you do an appropriate amount of intensity is the, the short answer. Mm-hmm. So we're all individuals at yeah. the end of the day, right? Um, but we can all benefit uh, from uh, like higher intensity work. Yeah, yeah. And the key aspects of why that, that is relates to, we touched on it, but you know, you get this larger muscle recruitment. So I know you're a diesel engine, you, you go all day, Mickey, but inside that that diesel engine there's there's at least a couple fast twitch muscle fibers right <laughs> you reckon and, <laughs> right so you've got a um if you touch on those every mm. once in a while from a higher intensity you're you're going to make them more oxidative you're going to make them which is actually a good thing because they still remain as powerful yeah but you're making them more fatigue resistant yeah so the yeah back to your to your question you want to touch on that for a little bit mm-hmm. uh and then another key principle of hit science is that you always want to walk away from that hit session however you're skinning it but you always want to walk away like you could have done one or two more, you know, sets or, or reps or whatever, depending on, on how it was like you all. And that was, again, back to the history. That was what the coaches were always telling their athletes. Yeah. It wasn't, you don't, you know, you don't go to the well mm. on your hit session. Mm. Like you might, you know, might, you might see people doing in their CrossFits or whatever. Mm. Like you, that's not an appropriate workout because then you can't back up the next day. Yeah. The key thing for training is training consistency. So yeah. you should always leave that like you could have done more. So even even in yourself or name your name your athlete that you that you work with, Mickey, it's like you you still like a little bit touching on yeah. in the program in the week is usually appropriate. There's there's context where that's not, where it's just a person getting off the couch, maybe we maybe we want to have a little bit of a base first, but you can always do at least you know, usually a one rep is not going to yeah. um, hurt a person. And yeah, then yeah. you know, um, it could be you know up to you know, when we're talking about our elites, they can do, you know, um, six, six sets of 10, 30, 30s. Mm. And, uh, yeah, like it's, it's, it's quite a lot, quite a lot of work, but it's like they're, they've progressed up to that over, uh, you know, the length of a career. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I listened to Zach Bitter talk about his training. I don't know if you've sort of followed any of what he does, but he's, you know, he does a, he does a bit of certainly some kind of uh, shorter intervals, like the 30-30s that you just sort of described. He does longer ones as well, but he sort of yeah. kicks off his training, with, which he 
he he he sees himself as a little bit um turning it around to what people might normally do like he starts with the shorter sharper stuff and then gets a little bit more specific as he leads on into his race um doing things like 30 30s or one minute on one minute off and he actually describes it as you've just you know said like it's not an all-out effort in that he leaves everything out there because he has to run again either in the afternoon usually or the next day he needs to leave something a little bit in the tank do you think that's where people get it wrong Paul is that we all had it it's I don't know the Olympics every single session yeah yeah absolutely so like 90 90 percent of us get that aspect wrong so yeah you know there's got to be one or two of your listeners out there that could really just 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 perk up the ears and just yeah it's okay let's let's not go to the well in this session let's just let's hit it and let's um let's cut off, cut off one or two before, uh, and then let's repeat that again the next day. And that's a, just a, um, far better strategy than, yeah. than going to the well on any of these sessions. Yeah. How often should people do hit in a week's training, for example? Yeah. Like Great if I'm, question. And yeah. Again, sorry to say it, but it's just so individual. So yeah. you could be an individual. We talked about the person getting off the coach. One small session might be all that they can handle in that week. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, I was, I can, I can remember actually a conversation at Millennium in HBSNZ and I was talking to John Walker's coach and John Walker, a famous runner for for New Zealand. And he would tell me, he came up and I gave him a present, I was given a presentation to all the athletics coaches and then he piped up, he's an an older fella. And and he was saying, when I would coach John, he would, uh, he was doing hit sessions almost every day. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so, like, I mean, it, it, so there you go, right? Like, so it's it's from from one in a week to to potentially every day in the the world's best Olympias. Yeah. Right. So who? What? What is? So what's appropriate for that individual that's in front of you? Yeah, I feel like when we think about what the elites do, it's almost like in my head, I'm like, well, that's not applicable to me because there is something about an individual that that makes them that elite you know like there is something special about our elite athletes that they are actually complete like I don't know I and you may feel differently but I feel like they're outliers in almost all areas I mean and I'm not suggesting that they don't work hard but part of their because of course they do but there's something special about them that puts that hard work with some sort of ability that then allows them to compete at that top level, which is different from, you know, your your age grouper. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree for sure. Well, and and there's so many different things in the makeup of the person or the phenotype, right? Yeah. So let's imagine like, yeah. So maybe John Walker had, you know, he's highly likely a, you know, had a, a solid amount of fast or sorry, slow twitch muscle fibers. And he would just, you know, you know, even though he's going incredibly fast in these, in these hit workouts, he's doing them very oxidatively. He's probably burning a high percentage of fat with low, low byproducts and uh, not a massive amount of sympathetic central nervous system stress. And as a result, he does it with a smile on his face, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and can back it up the next time. Cause and, and and of course, don't forget about the progression that it takes to to get there as well, right? Like you just don't you don't get off the couch and start doing that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they are they they are special. But one of the other thing I've learned in coaching these individuals is that they are all human beings, just like you and me. That's yeah, for, yeah. That's for sure. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if my train, if I don't want to do as much volume, is there room to do more hit? Is there reason to do more hit? Is there benefit yeah. in it? Like, you know, yeah. I would say usually, yeah. uh, you, because, you know, we, we look to that, you know, many of us have probably heard of that polarized type training where you should, um, there's the recommendation that you should do about 80% of your training below your aerobic threshold. Mm. So in, in that, you know, your easy talk test kind of zone and then 20%, you know, it can be done as moderate to moderate intensity exercise threshold efforts or hit. Yeah. And, but I would say that, that, the that's only usually applicable if we're going over say, you know, up to 18, 20 hours of training in a week for like a triathlete sort of thing. So yeah, a lot yeah. of us, most of us aren't doing that. Enough. I'm certainly not. No. So yeah, you can, um, depending on the individual, probably tolerate uh, more hit sessions if you're in a low volume kind of program, but you still have to really use common sense with, with, with your own context, right? Yeah. So if you're already super stressed and super fatigued and tired, you know, and, and hit it, hit just isn't working for you on that day. Yeah. Listen to the body and, and do something else, right? Go yeah. rest or recover or go for a, go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that type two might be good for someone who is for someone like me. Can you give me a couple of examples? What does that look like? Sure. So type two session would um, remember. So it's lever one aerobic. Yeah. So we're going to get the heart heart beating. We're going to get the um, we're going to recruit some muscle fibers mm. um, into the. So it's going to be done. Let's you're running context. So you'd be running fast. Uh, but your and your anaerobic level second mm -hmm. lever is going to be low yeah and the third lever neuromuscular is going to be high so in your context mickey i might have a session where we're going to do some hill running mm -hmm. and we're going to go out at let's say 20 seconds on hard mm -hmm. up that hill mm -hmm. and then we might do say for example 40 seconds um, 40 seconds off and, um, just kind of walk, walk down recovery back to the starting place. Mm -hmm. So in that sort of situation and the intensity should be above again, so that we get a neuromuscular response, you should almost kind of be sprinting probably, or just below, just below sprinting. Yeah. So not all out, but, but, you know, at 120% of, of VO2 max kind mm -hmm. of uh, effort. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might do that for, yeah, 20 seconds, but notice the, so the, the, the pause ratio is 40 seconds. So there's yeah. lots of recovery time for lactate to be lower. Mm. And this is due to, and sort of geek out on some physiology, but this is due to this really cool protein in our muscles called myoglobin. So the yeah. myoglobin with long pauses is able to resaturate fully. So even though you've exercised hard for 20 seconds, there's this 40 second period of time to, um, I guess, lower the blood lactate level and keep it actually still at, um, you know, probably around four millimoles. Okay. And, uh, but, but the heart will be beating quite fast. So if the first one, you won't see too much. The mm. second one, not too much either, but now you've got the system kind of going yeah. and you'll, if you actually measure your heart rate during that, yeah. you'll see that you're, you are getting an aerobic response from this overall, overall workout and kind of, it stays elevated, but lactate is low. Yeah. And, and yeah, you might do that, uh, eight times and then take a, take a pause and just go for a little jog and then you might do it another, another, another six times. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of ways to kind of do it, but that is a type two kind of session. So it would be 
maximal recruitment, preparing you for these hills that you're going to have to do in your ultra, yeah. but keeping lactate low and, uh, and neuromuscular recruitment high. Yeah. Okay. And I noticed in your Athletica AI system, you talk about using rate of perceived, which we're going to discuss in a minute, but um, which is almost like you taking the the guesswork out of it really for us. So instead of me thinking, you know, do I need to do type two and how long should it be? I put my details into your um, your platform and you basically tell me what I need to do, which is actually fabulous for anyone who needs, you know, that kind of support, which is most of us. Um, <laughs> you use rate of perceived exertion as a, a way to sort of monitor how we feel about the sessions as well i believe is that right yeah so this is uh so within the algorithms in the back now we're kind of talking about the load response yeah so how would i describe the load response so load is like stress on your body yeah right so whenever you do any of these workouts that you're doing whether it's an aerobic workout or an um, anaerobic workout hard hit session um gym session you're getting a stress on the body and that stress is going to cause your system to uh, be stressed and then you'll rebound mm. and, and adapt to it. Right. So, and of course we're all different to that stress that we're giving and we're all different on a on a given day as well. Mm -hmm. So being aware of what's called the load response, your response to the stress is, uh, has been found to be a very great indicator for coaches and practitioners to understand how much load and recovery uh, you need the following days. Mm. And that's what the, the RPE or the rating of perceived exertion gets us insight into. So we, um, we, it's like our session rating of perceived exertion. How hard did you feel that session was? Yeah. And then how did it, we also use a, something called feel. So how, how did that session feel? Like mm -hmm. you can have a hard session that feels really crappy and mm. you can have a hard session that you know you can do a hit session you're like oh, i really nailed that i felt felt great yeah so that's that's also giving us a signal and then again if we're staying on athletica we're um, we also use a semantic analysis so this is the uh the google juices and the the bots and whatnot in the back of kind of we can they can actually interpret what you're writing in your comments mm. i don't know if you how much coaching you do on training peaks mickey but it's it's really it's time consuming sometimes to read all the comments well, uh, and, and sort of figure out an interpretation from what the person's saying. But that's, again, what we have with Athletica as well. Is they also, we also interpret the comments. And then those three factors go into our algorithm and, and determine, uh, you know, how much load is going to uh, be applied in the next day mm. and what the next session should sort of be. Yeah. So does that does that describe yeah, what, what it, we're, we're doing there? Yeah, it does because the um, you know, with uh, a lot of athletes don't put a lot of faith into how they feel. They put much more faith into what their heart rate does, what their mm -hmm. peak power mm -hmm. is. Even though with running, I know there are power meters for running, but they're not as well utilized and are maybe not as well studied as say you know cycling power meters. But you know, so but we oftentimes rely on that external data to provide us feedback from our session, not really thinking about, okay, well, how did I actually feel in that session? And that's why I really love RPE because it's so simple mm -hmm. and you don't require any real fancy sort of, you know, equipment to be able to then apply it and, and use it really. But you just got to trust yourself that you sort of, 
you know, that actually how you feel really does matter and it should dictate what you do the next day, not what your heart rate says and, and whatnot. Even though obviously things, these things are, um, are aligned, you know, you do get a heart rate response that will probably indicate what eight, nine or five feels like on your RPE. But even just for people like me who like data, but I'm just, I'm one of the laziest people in the world when it comes to it. Like I don't, can't really be bothered sort of analyzing it. Of that way too. And again, that's why we, that's why we invented this, this program is that, so, you know, so we can still, yeah, we, you know, because it's too time consuming and too who cares kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the coach should care. So, um, yeah. And it's, uh, and this is why we're, we're creating this is so it's like, so someone's kind of looking over you in terms of looking after your, your training yeah. and because we all, we all still want to perform well on race day, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, you, we sign up for these sorts of things. Yeah. So if we can keep um, ourselves within some guide rails to, yeah. to keep us on track, well, that can be, that can be really beneficial. Right. And yeah, I, again, the other, the other thing I'll mention, like by using the wearables and stuff, mm. then we, we get an indicator of, you know, what your, what your ability is, whether that's the power on the bike and the, or the speed of running and the heart rate response to that. And then when we have that and we can put that alongside the RPE feel mm. comments, well, then it's, it's giving a lot more richer insight into how, how good that session really was. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, what I noticed when I was on there last week is that it is the, the changes in the session are almost in real time, you know, like, so I did a session and then I'd jump on and then I would see that the session for the next day had changed in response to how I had perceived and, and what my heart rate was and what the session was like the day before. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool actually. So yeah. it is, it's, it's pretty much, it gives you that coaching without necessarily having a coach. And I think, because a lot of us, I feel particularly in running, feel like we're not good enough to have a coach you know we don't warrant a coach what we do isn't serious enough for a coach but we still want to be coached and so platforms mm -hmm. like this allow that to happen and sort of for us to have that without necessarily having the not the buy-in because we have the buy-in but everything else that comes from having a coach if you like mm -hmm. yeah for sure and that's that's why we wanted to create it because we wanted people to yeah, have a coach or at least the, the services of a coach. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of coaching is in terms of price point as well is inaccessible yeah. to many of us. Right. So we wanted to invent something that, you know, has a price point that is, um, is accessible to the majority of us yeah, and gives great insight into really the, you know, some recommendations, some guidelines into what should be done the next day. And, but that, be, that being said, I will, I will say that you always want to still, the computer is never going to know it all. No. Like you've got to use, you, you've got to use it in a line with, in alignment with common sense. Yeah, for sure. That's what I always say. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, as a nutritionist, I see clients one-on-one, -on -one, but I also have a platform, not unlike Athletica, but in the nutrition space where I do meal plans for people and then they have access to me to pick my brain as to how, even though mine doesn't have the um, IT behind it to be able to change a meal based on what someone says they've eaten, they have access to me to be able to sort of bounce, you know, is this appropriate? I'm doing this. How do I need to change it? So they have my insights, but they also have a, a plan, a template plan, if you like. And 
the people that sign up for that aren't necessarily people who want to do a one-on-one with someone for whatever it might be cost. It might just be that actually they're really good at following a plan. That's all they really want from it. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's the same with Athletica AI and other systems that might be out there that are like coaching systems. They're not necessarily taking, there are a lot of athletes out there that would use it that would never go to a coach, you know? So it's not like this is instead of a coach is how I sort of saw it. Yeah, well, for sure. And at the moment it, it is, it's a replacement for, for a coach presently, but we are, we are busy behind the scenes working on a coach version because all of these features that we have, well, lo and behold, coaches want them too, right? Totally. Coaches want them. They, you know, they, because it solves a lot of the problems for, for coaches in terms of looking after athletes. That's what it does. It kind of looks after, looks after the athlete and the load. Um, I went to remember the training peaks conference in 2015 that I was at. And, uh, the, that was the key question that, uh, coaches asked for the, in the conference was they, they had the, their, their athletes were asking them, okay, now that my, um, context changed, I couldn't do that workout. Can I make it up coach? Well, they didn't really know the answer. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they wanted that sort of solution and that's what I really, yeah, I, I, I piqued my interest. Uh, I remember, remember those conversations at that presentation and that's, yeah, it was one of the, one of the reasons why, why I really pushed forward to, to make this. Yeah. And you know, your knowledge and what you've put together with hit science and now Athletica AI is something that coaches don't necessarily have a lot of access to either. So you're mm-hmm. providing that access to them because, you know, I think about there are people who coach who come from that athletic background themselves and they were former athletes or still current athletes and then they want to sort of share their knowledge and understanding from that personal experience with their athletes but this provides them with a tool that also gives them the um, scientific nous behind it if you like and of course they can learn it and there are many courses like your hit science course where they can learn it but it doesn't mean just because you know it that you necessarily have the knowledge to apply it so it's sort of yeah it's totally another tool yeah, no, yeah, couldn't couldn't really add much more to that. Absolutely. Yeah. So now, um, I am actually going to be talking to someone who had really good success on Athletica AI, Brianna Stubbs, who mm-hmm. I knew um in that kind of science geek world is because she's also a guru with ketone esters and the application of using ketones in a range of different sort of contexts. But that must have been like a really solid sort of indication of how successful AI can be. Yeah, we were so stoked. We were so stoked when that happened uh, for for Brianna. And yeah, I mean, I'll uh, I'll let her tell the tell the story. I, th- I believe you're going to be speaking to her. Yeah. And uh, and but yeah, no, tune into that one. And it's pretty pretty cool. She was, yeah, you know, I think she well, she used Athletica as it's supposed to be used. Like mm. you're supposed to, you know. Um, curve your own sort of training into your own context. You, you probably can't take every single thing that athletic is recommending all the time, mm. at least not, not yet. Mm. And you've got to, um, and that's kind of how she, how she used it. But for the most part, it the recommendations and the plan kept her on, on track and it solved us. It gave her a solution. She's been, you know, she's been searching for a Kona spot for, for a long time. And, and we're just so privileged that she used our program to, to achieve that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah I mean, it, it, it's pretty cool. Like it, it's only, it's only been live for four months and we already got that result. So. Amazing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Keep it going. So, Paul, obviously, I will put like links to Hit Science and also to Athletica AI, which I believe that you are offering a seven day trial so people can sort of go in and see what it's all about, which was awesome. Yeah, totally. And people who just reach out to me directly as well. Awesome. So just hello, hello at athletica.ai. And um, yeah, if you've got any questions and then, and certainly get familiar with the platform too, just by um, doing the seven day free trial. And we've also got a YouTube channel as well with lots of instructional and videos on, on there as too. So awesome. Check it out. Awesome. I do want to ask you a few more questions just based on, physiology uh sort of hit and and you know responses to training and obviously a lot of my questions have been selfish sort of you know i'm picking your brain for the things that i do but um sauna and cold water immersion are you all over that paul is that something that you're you sort of use with regards to recovery or um enhancing the cardiac response to training like what are your thoughts on that stuff and context is that i I'm loving the sauna right now as yes. sort of like going for a run and jumping in the sauna for sort of 20 minutes afterwards. And, and it's not an infrared. I've actually had a couple of infrared saunas over the last few weeks, but I feel like, and I, maybe I heard Rhonda Patrick talk about it as well, is that that uncomfortable feeling you get from a dry sauna, so not an infrared sauna, is in fact part of the adaptation response. And I just... I don't feel the same after infrared as I do after after the dry sauna, which is really interesting. But I'm also a big fan of that cold water immersion too. It doesn't get mm-hmm. that cold in Auckland, to be honest, but, you know, you do what you can. So, you know, we talk about these adaptations that occur through, say, HIT or training. Do you ever recommend that people add these things on as part of their training routine? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. If I mean, again, if you can. So if these are available to you, just like you're just like you're using in your context, then they're they're both fantastic. I think it's it's good to get too hot sometimes and it's good to get too cold sometimes. Mm. And they're they're just seen throughout, you know, I'm uh I guess um ancestral health uh viewpoint is 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 my is my bias and I, I believe that humans got hot and they got cold mm. throughout um, their their evolution. So it's it just and, and all of the you know the scientific research supports that there's benefits to to doing having periods of time where you're hot and periods of time where you're cold mm. uh, for just depending on the context. So uh, so trying to get a regular dose of both in your life, depending where you are. Mm. And it probably depends on the season as well. Mm. But, um, but yeah, if whatever you can do kind of to, to get both, uh, I think yeah, manipulating your body through, through, um, into periods of hot periods of periods of cold different times of day is, is a great thing. It's certainly something I practice. Yeah. As well. I've seen a number of people now have the long chest freezer that they plug in and, um, wow. use and use that as their sort of cold water immersion mm-hmm. and um, I think it's such a great idea because it costs a lot of money to buy a, it takes a lot of ice bags and therefore a lot of money to actually just you know fill your bathtub um, yeah. so I'm trying to convince Barry that that's what we need at home he's yet to be convinced but I don't know I think I just need to give him some time for that one Definitely. yeah yeah we're fortunate in Revelstoke there's just there's a the uh, ice fed um, lake that's right across the street there. So, oh, amazing! Right, that is lucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing is, Paul, you describe your diet as. Um, I mean, obviously, I I know you as being LCHF, right? 
and yeah. um and you just described it as a bit of a neutrophil sort of you know a, a meat forward lean if you like yeah for sure how does that fit with hit because you're always hearing that and and certainly there are people who do their f45 classes and they spend 45 minutes doing hit six days a week and so obviously context matters but with regards to diet and hit based training within a sort of training program like are there any recommendations that you have around that that you see work or see that are important Mm, man, context, eh? Mm. Uh, really, really depends. I mean, you know, if Martin was talking here, he'd probably be talking about his, uh, you know, his his professional football players, where he would manipulate the the carbohydrate uh, content for certain sessions with his, you know, with his nutritionists. But you know, if if you're, I kind of go back. I, I I wonder why we're sort of doing that a bit. You, I, I think you can also you can exacerbate the the response of the, of the session, make, in other words, make more, make more, um, mitochondria. Ultimately, there's yeah. some evidence that, that if you have, if you do the session a little bit more in a sort of a depleted state, yeah. and then some practitioners would argue, well, then you're not getting enough quality in it, but what is quality at the end of the day? Do you want, the, do you want to amplify the signal for adaptation or do you want the maximal performance in a training session? Mm. For me, I want to amplify the signal yeah. and I want to you know, you know, make sure that my athlete can come back and, and repeat that signal. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, it, it's a tough one. And again, we also have to remember in the LCHF carnivore context, we have this whole process called gluconeogenesis. Mm. So you've got this liver in your body and it's, it does a great job at producing carbohydrate for us mm. in the um, in the recovery periods, mm. and you know Jeff Folak and the Faster study have shown the muscle biopsies that the the carbohydrate content, the glycogen content of the muscles, it, you know, it, after uh, overnight um, fast, is the same as someone that's that's pounding carbs, mm. and uh, it's that's because the the liver is making carbohydrate out of um, out of fat and, and protein, that's its job. So I have no problems doing any sort of hit sessions or any session for that matter in fasted states under low under fed states. Uh, I think it's a bit overblown in terms of really looking at, at that, but you know, I, I really think we, the, the thing that people feel the most probably is the central nervous system effect of a, of any carbohydrate that's kind of in the system because car carbs in general are sympathetic mobilizers. Mm. So they would heighten the system and they make you feel a little bit more energized when you have them. So if that's going to help you and, and, and get you, you know, allow you to feel better and get them a little bit more out of a session, then all the power to you go for that. Mm. But if, you know, in, in, if you're like me, who's, I guess, been LCHF for, for, 10 years now it's i don't need to i don't necessarily need to do that to, yeah. to feel good in a session yeah so just depends yeah and that what you say with regards to the length of time you've spent being lchf i hear that a lot you know that mm. you know it is that 
that adaptations continue to occur in, in, in ways which you sort of might not even be aware of, except for looking back at how you used to respond to sessions. You're like, actually, that's not happening to me anymore. I'm able to do this session much easier compared to, say, how I was three, four, five years ago. But you, And again, it comes back to what we're talking about with the collagen, the vitamin C, like these are anecdotes. Or you hear mm. case studies. These aren't large clinical trials because they don't run large clinical trials looking at this. They run trials for three weeks or four weeks or they repeat a trial twice but it's a full week trial you know done twice so it's not you don't actually see those long-term adaptations to these different nutrition protocols and how they might impact in the long term and and what what you said about the you know what I'm doing with 100k that's going to be 14 hours for me 13 14 hours that's a long time and you'll want to be a good fat burner want to be a good fat burner absolutely you know like I'm so I'm looking at um I've got some Generation You Can gels coming my way, actually. Um, nice. And I've got a bunch of their bars and, and powders and stuff to sort of play around with with that stuff. But um, And I also appreciate um, Jeff Rothschild's work looking at, you know, using protein prior to exercise so mm-hmm. you don't dampen down that sort of signal, um, uh, the molecular signal of AMPK and all the rest of it by taking yeah. on board fuel. So I'm sort of looking at, things like that too yeah and i mean anecdotally that is a lot of my athletes are you know they, when they're doing long kind of fasted rides i guess they're, they're, they're non-fasted ultimately but they'll many of them will start with aminos in the system and yeah they, but you know not through a powder but just you know a, a few eggs kind of thing before yeah. they go they go long but then they won't really have anything throughout the whole ride they just feel great. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think a large part of the concern is that low energy availability, right? And so mm-hmm. people often conflate LCHF with low calorie. And, and, and in fact, for a lot of people, it, it ends up being low calorie unintentionally even because it, it does have that satiety effect where you just don't feel like eating as much. But if an athlete is wanting to get the most sort of bang for their buck with regards to this extended endurance stuff, then being a good fat burner is key. But actually just be be mindful of of that whole low energy availability thing and ensuring you're getting your calories in, right? Mm-hmm. Having said that, totally. I am talking to Herman Ponzer as well in a couple of weeks, all about his book, Burn. I don't know if you've read or, or heard of that, Paul. No, no, tell me more. He's an anthropologist who's done his work looking at the Hitza population. And mm-hmm. they did doubly labeled water trials to measure their energy expenditure. This was back in 2012, I believe, was their first study was published in that they realized that the Hitza don't expend any more energy than what we do which was a revelation at the time because they spend, they do so much more physical activity that they were anticipating that their overall energy expenditure is actually um, uh, over and above that they, they expected it to be, you know, two, three, four times the metabolic rate, but it's, it's similar to the usual U S population, despite the number of physical activity that they do. Fascinating. It is fascinating. So yeah, it just totally throws the whole calorie in, calorie out um, theory out the window, doesn't it? Yeah, it or does. It really puts a puts a hole in it. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly does. And so there's a cap on how much energy that anyone can burn in one day, I think. And I've seen studies mm-hmm. like that. Um, but then, of course, you've got the Tour de France studies, which say that you know these guys are burning eight, nine, ten, twelve thousand calories a day. 
in that trial. So, you know, I'm really interested to talk to him about how his research sort of, you know, how that sits with that other research that we know. And maybe it's just, maybe the other studies I've seen of energy expenditure, predictive sort of equations are used rather than actually measuring. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. The thing I never get really about all these sorts of studies is that, like, remember that how plentiful the whole store of fat, like the whole fat reservoir, like yeah. there's just like, you know, you, we've all, all of us, like the leanest individuals, you and me, we've got enough um, calories on board of us, theoretically, to march from Auckland to, to Dunedin, right? Mm. Like you could go, you could go for that run un, unaided in theory. Mm. Um, like that's the, that's the tank that sits there in terms of energy. Mm. To me, it's accessibility of that energy that that's probably the problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and this is where I think some of, uh, some of the challenges come with our mainstream approach to nutrition, which might be a little bit more carb dominated, therefore insulin dominated, therefore lacking accessibility to that Mm. large reservoir. I'm not, I'm not sure if that conflict, um, yeah, just conflicts some of the findings and theories that are sort of out there, but that's when I'm sort of thinking about it, I'm just, I'm always thinking about the nutrition that's going to maximize the accessibility to that reservoir and then the repletion of i guess all of the nutrients that are going to make the make make the make the person Mm, mm, no that's good now one final thing which is actually back on hit very briefly do we know if there are any sex differences on these hit adaptations paul like do women respond differently i would not i would say not really like we're all like the fundamentals, so the fundamentals, so women have fast twitch muscle fibers, mm-hmm. they can recruit those. Mm-hmm. So no difference there, but you know, again, think of the individual, um, women have hearts and cardiac output, mm-hmm. so no difference there. So that's, that's still the same sort of response. Uh, women have blood, uh, uh, blood, um, lactate response often not as great. Women are ten- tend to be better fat burners uh, than men, but again, we're generalizing and everyone's an individual. Same with the neuromuscular response. All of that's the same. The one thing that might be a little bit different is the, you know, the, 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 the cycle, right? Like, mm. so you've got a, so potentially the timing of the hit workout around the activation of the central nervous system of the female could be a little bit different. Mm. There's, I think there's, there's an anecdotal evidence there mm. that timing of that, uh, of that session could be optimal in certain, certain, um, certain times of the month than others. But you would, uh, you as a, as a woman mm. would, would probably be more insightful there yeah, yeah. as to when, when you feel like doing hit versus not, um, but I think everyone's an individual, you know, probably all individual as well there too. It's the same with race performance too. Like, I mean, I coach a lot of women and they don't want to be, uh, having the race when, you know, when they're menstruating. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's, they, 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 like if they're, you know, if they're lining up on the calendar and it's like, you know, Oh shoot, they're, you know, yeah, yeah. on that day. Like they're not happy about that sort of situation necessarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and I think, you know, hit hits a little bit with that where there's a little bit of timing on that. Um, there's also some evidence that, uh, the period of ov- ovulation, mm. so that's only, it's gonna be a very short window, but that that's, 
tends to be very good when if you can time that for personal bests mm. in women. Yeah. We're talking more central nervous system things here. So not, not from a physiological, like not, not, not from a, not from the most part. Yeah, is yeah. What sort of say. yeah. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because I think mm-hmm. what you've, what you've said, I, I, I would agree with this that every woman is different as to how they experience their cycle, you know? So there are women who get through each month and they're like, Oh, Oh, it's my period again. That's right. Because they're not that aware because there's no reason to be aware because nothing changes for them. Whereas there are other women who are very, who feel very differently week in, week out. And Lara Bride and I talked about this as well, just with regards to you make changes if changes need to be made, you know, if like you would any athlete and then, from a nutrition standpoint for a woman, you know, there are things that can be done to help minimize that central nervous system response or minimize the bloating or minimize the, you know, all the other symptoms that she experiences. So she has a bit of a smoother ride, which would then mean that that the timing of these things might not be as much of an issue than if it was if she wasn't putting into place these other kind of nutrition recommendations around her cycle. That's interesting. Yeah. Nice. yeah. No, and, and that's great. Yeah. So, um, as we're always, always saying context, right? Yeah. So for, for sure. So you've got, yeah, if I accidentally prescribe a, a hit workout to one of my female athletes at that time and, you know, sometimes they, yeah, they'll, they'll delete or move yeah. in, in accordance with how they know they're going to feel. Yeah. That's the right thing. To do. Yeah, totally. However, what you did just say about how they know they're going to feel, because there is good sort of, you know, there is data out there to show that that whole psychological aspect, which was what you just mentioned as well, can play a large part in yeah. how we feel much as I was talking about with my, how I, how my head feels about doing a hundred K versus doing 50 K, you know, so much of it is up here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Interesting stuff, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, look, now can we finish off? Because you and Phil Maffetone, uh came on and chatted about the perfect storm. So you guys were, you know, some of the very early res- uh, publishers of literature in and around our metabolic health with COVID-19 and the yeah. importance of it for helping with regards to keeping us resilient, if you like, against that or any sort of illness or infection. And it's, it's over a year since you've published that paper, I think, Paul. So yeah, it was twenty twenty twenty. Yeah, it was. Yeah, we we got on we got on it really quick, right? Yeah. We sort of saw it happening. Yeah. Um, because it was a hot topic, and it was yeah, it was published in April of twenty twenty. Yeah. In Frontiers in Physiology. Yeah. And yeah, I got yeah, I got lots of exposure, and yeah, I think at that time, basically, it was it was the we called it the perfect storm because. It, we were looking at this new novel coronavirus mm. coming into the world, and we were also looking at the the, the other pandemic of the world, which is we call overfat. Mm. Basically, it's just having too much fat on your body, which which impairs your metabolic health. Mm. So, and and the the reason that's a bad thing is because your metabolic health controls your immune system, which mm. is the fundamental. Um, you know, fighter of any, you know, any coronavirus or any, anything that's going to kind of be foreign to us. Mm. And yeah, we, we were basically just saying, this is, this is a, this is a problem and it's going to affect especially those who are, are over fat, obese, overweight, uh, or those who are old, because this is ultimately, it's, it's sort of the same thing. You're, you know, the health of your metabolic health deteriorates all in all of us. Mm. There's nothing we can do about that. Mm. It's just as we age, 
chronologically, we can do things about it, which is all the things we talk about, but inevitably our metabolic health just deteriorates through the process of aging and this, the cycle of life. Mm. And, and yeah, that's, that's ultimately what the paper sort of showed. And we thought, you know, this is the world's going to wake up and everyone's going to get really healthy and everyone's mm. going to focus on uh, getting adequate vitamin D now. Mm. And we thought, you know, maybe the New York times would pick up our paper, nothing crickets. And it was just, uh, yeah, it's been a really strange year in North America, Mickey. If I'm if I'm being honest, I'm, as we started, I'm I'm over here in Canada. Yeah, and things have, especially in the last little while, have gotten a little bit weird. Yeah, I don't know what's what's going on down in New Zealand? Yeah, but, uh, well, certainly from the the focus on health perspective, like we are no different in New Zealand as to what you've just described in North America with regards to the importance that is being placed on metabolic health in regards to COVID, given that it has been absolutely turned the world on its head, you know, the, like the, you and I started off our conversation off air and I was telling you that I was watching The Handmaid's Tale and which is this dystopian sort of universe. It was, it was written by Margaret Atwood, who is your fellow countrywoman, actually. I believe she's Canadian. And it's that, you know, there's this second civil war in America which means that there are only two states left as America you know everything has changed and I was watching some of the scenes on it uh, and not to get political on it but there were you know there were people protesting against it and then people just being shot like because they were protesting against the people that had overtaken the government and, and things like that and and I just thought you know it's a weird thing to to feel that you're sitting here watching this and two years ago I would be like, oh God, that would never happen. You know, like, oh yeah, this is like completely, you know, this is obviously a story. But then in light of the events of the last year, I'm watching this scene going, you know, that's not too different from what I was hearing that was going on in America last year with regards to not COVID related, but other political sort of things coming to the, coming to the fore. Um, yeah. yeah. The left versus right sort of stuff. Yeah, the left versus right sort of stuff. And then if I, I don't know, I sort of tangent on that, but if I go back to, you know, what the focus is here in New Zealand, it's about wearing masks and getting a vaccine. There is absolutely nothing out there from any um, kind of public health authority to say everyone should be taking vitamin D, particularly given that it's winter, you know? Like, mm-hmm. are you getting enough sleep? Like, what's you know what are we doing to support the health of our vulnerable like there is no still no um conversation around health at all yeah yeah uh, i'm confused uh, like something yeah something seems really 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 odd in the world so um yeah, yeah and i mean i don't recognize the canada that i'm in at the moment yeah. if i'm honest so it's uh yeah i mean like um are you locked just, down still Paul, like what's your situation? Well, we're, you know, I'm in British Columbia. Mm. We're in one of the better provinces in terms of the whole lockdown thing. Mm. But, you know, it's, I think uh, there's still a mask mandate in the, in the stores mm-hmm. in, you know, in the summertime. And, and again, remember, there's the, the evidence to suggest that masks are beneficial to prevent spread in asymptomatic individuals, like asymptomatic individuals, someone that doesn't, isn't shedding the virus. So you're not, you know, you're not 
they've got snot coming out of your, yeah. <laughs> your system. Like there's just, there, there never has been, and, and there still isn't any benefit, like any reason why a mask in an asymptomatic individual is going to, it's not going to spread anything is of any benefit other than, you know, preventing communication and uh, across individuals and preventing the transfer of emotional intelligence. How people are feeling. It's, it's quite, it, it almost seems a little bit sinister. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I had a um, chat to Julia Rutledge, which will likely be published before this episode is published. It's not published yet, but she was, she was in the UK for, to, because her father had passed and then came back and, and well, when we talked, she was in isolation in Christchurch. She said that in the UK, everyone was, you know, they'd just come out of lockdown when she was there and everyone was really hypervigilant, like very on edge and also masked. And, you know, like, what do we know about humans and social connection? It's one of the foundations of health. And to kind of walk around in this sort of hypervigilant state, being suspicious of people around you that that might be sick or that you could catch something from them um, mm -hmm. to be masked to again not be able to convey that emotion and that feeling and the, the connection like that is you know that's a hard place for people to be I think yeah that's right and don't forget stress also doesn't uh, enhance your immune system no. it depresses your immune system so everything that all of the actions uh, while curbed as being good intent, uh, are in fact making the situation worse, mm. whether it's, yeah, whether it's lockdown, not, you know, not seeing other humans and, and even, even spreading, spreading, um, germs is actually a healthy aspect. And yeah. there's a learning that, that actually happens in the, in the immune systems and whatnot, yeah. right? especially our, our young individuals, they're, they, who are who have very powerful immune systems well they they that's how herd immunity kind of develops right mm. because they can fight these sorts of things off and and you know we've we're masking our children mm. in uh, in schools here mm. and um yeah and and locking the locking them down so they can't uh can't you know can't be around one another you know it's yeah it's it's very it's very, yeah, it seem, all seems very wrong. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, this information isn't widely known mm. because there's a, there's a, the other thing that's happened and this has happened to me. So I've been, you know, I, was, I made a comment on Facebook and I was deplatformed. De oh. I wrote a letter to the editor in my local town on some of this stuff and it went through, uh, as much peer review as you can imagine mm -hmm. in, in terms of a, a letter to the editor. It was actually co-written by a reporter in the town, mm -hmm. um, edited by his editor, mm -hmm. and then it went to head office uh, in Kelowna mm -hmm. where it was titled as being misinformation. Mm -hmm. So and it was really just more of the stuff that Phil and I have mentioned, plus some of these other things that I'm you know, all backed up well-referenced article yeah but it was misinformation so that wasn't even allowed to, to actually be published in our local paper yeah and you can imagine that small story multiplied you know hundreds of thousands of times mm. around the world mm. and it's a very strange world that we're in yeah for sure so Paul what's your advice then okay so that's my question like if, if these are things which you think people should be concerned about what's your advice to people to, yeah. to sort of well, find out I more. Mean, the, the, the key, the key thing we really should be, think, looking at, and everyone should be doing their own research on this. 
uh, look outside mainstream. I would recommend if you can. And I would um, like the, the, what's mainstream solution for the coronavirus. It's not what Phil and I were mentioning with mm. the perfect storm where you're looking at your vitamin D levels, you're building your immune system through diet and nutrition. It's, you know, it's nothing of that. It's, it's get the jab. Yeah, so yeah. that to me is, is, um, something we should all just kind of stand up and just have a think about, is that really the best solution that, yeah. um, that we should be looking towards? It seems like, you know, that's, that's what we're being told, but is that, is that really the right thing? So, you know, if you haven't had the jab yet, I would be, I would, you know, before you wind up and, and get in line for that, I would, I would just try to do a little bit of research outside of maybe what mainstream is telling you there. So that's, that would be the main, the main message. It's certainly not what Phil and I recommend. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, yeah, I think uh, we've all got really strong immune systems and we can beef in those immune systems through vitamin D diet. And there's treatments for, for coronavirus. It's despite what we are heard, what we hear, it's a, uh, you know, there's a, a 1% mortality, less than 1% mortality rate, a 99% plus chance of, uh, of survival in this. And that 1% is usually in, a you know, the, the 70 to 80 plus category who are, you know, who are old or they're in the, the, the overfat obese individuals who are metabolically unhealthy. So certainly not our children who are also now able to, get a vaccine without conform, informed consent, at least in Canada here, which is just uh, unheard of in, in history. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting, like, because there are people who have had COVID and had a terrible experience that wouldn't be old and they're not on the surface metabolically unhealthy. You know, like I think about some of the people that I follow who some people were, you know, they got it, they had a sniffle, they lost their taste for two, three days, then they got over it. But then there are other people who have been severely impacted by it. And But on the face of it, the, both of these sort of individuals I'm thinking of would sort of be in very similar camps with regards to their health and well-being. But obviously something's different with individuals mm-hmm. and how they sort of tolerate it. Absolutely. Well, we never, we never really know really what's under the hood, mm. do you? Yeah, in true. In terms of your, your overall metabolic health, we're all kind of guessing. Yeah. Maybe we're healthy. Maybe maybe we're not yeah. as healthy. And I, but I still believe that the the response that you're getting is a reflection of of your health. Yeah, I know yeah. lots of people that have that have gotten as well. I'm pretty sure uh, it went through our family here as well. Yeah. And don't forget, if it's gone through your family, that is um, that's an innate immune, immunity. That's yeah. you. You have no reason to line up for the um, to get the jab. Why would you like? That's you've actually just had the best. I mean, uh, situation, yeah. right? Like you're, you're programmed for a long time to have, to have innate immunity to, to, um, to future, um, bouts and runs in with, um, with, the uh, COVID-19. Mm. It's interesting. And you say, you know, why would anyone get the jab? And the reason why people would get the jab is because, their ability to do the things that they want might be severely compromised if they don't. Well, that's, yeah. So that's what, what are the things that you have to, what are they saying in New Zealand? I have no idea. So yeah. tell me what's the situation yeah. there and why, 
Why should you get the jab in New Zealand? Like, and I think it's more what we expect will happen is that you will need the jab in order to travel. And it and it's not, you know, it's not. And I, we haven't had that. That has, isn't the message. That's not what's being said, but it's not necessarily what New Zealand says. It's like other countries that we might travel to, like the States or like Canada. They might not let us in. We may not be able to come and swim in that lake right down by your house, Paul, <laughs> if, if we don't get a jab. You know, and I think yeah. these are the these are the, the potential sort of, um, I guess, concerns from that, again, that sort of political perspective rather than from a health perspective because – it's yeah, it's interesting. Most people I don't I know are not afraid to, of getting COVID. You know, mm-hmm. like that's just you know because maybe it's because we're all believe that we're in that metabolic health. That means that we would be the two or three days out and then sort of back to back to it. Yeah, but it's well, I'm not afraid to get it either. But uh, based on again the what Phil and I wrote, what my knowledge of that, uh, I am afraid to get the jab because I. Um, I'm starting to wonder, is there something in that jab that maybe doesn't belong in my body? Um, why? Yeah. So, and there's, there's some, some evidence that's kind of coming out that, you know, because they're, they're giving you that spike protein in that, uh, in that jab, that all that comes with, it's what's called the target antigen. And that does go into all of the, all of the jabs, all six of them. And yeah, I think, you know, just came out with, um, Dr. Brian Bertolf from the University of Guelph. He's, he's been the most, um, I guess, prolific or, um, outspoken virology professor in Canada. He's kind of our leader who's, he's pro-vaccine just to be, just to be very clear. He's not anti-vax. He, this is what he does. He develops vaccines Mm. and does the research for that. He's funded by the taxpayers of Canada. He's on NSERCs and he's, but he's also, um, you know, he's, he's here for the public because he's, he's, you know, it's our taxpayer paying dollars or, or paying him to be truthful and honest. And Mm. he's saying he's now privy to the, the biodistribution data that came out of Japan and from Pfizer and they are showing that in, well, it's just in one study in rats, but basically it's showing that the spike protein that's in the Pfizer vax is not staying in the deltoid of, at least in those rats and it's leaching into the rest. It's a good model. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. still a good model to use, but it's leaching into the rest of the tissues and that spike protein which is what makes us all very sick mm. is what actually causes, um, you know, it's, it's a toxin ultimately. So mm. if it goes into any of the other tissues and some of the tissues that's been detected in, in those rats include the, the, the ovaries, the spleen, the adrenals, and most alarmingly is the cardiac tissue. So all of the, um, all of the, you know, all of the blood vessels ultimately. So, um, yeah. And that's, yeah, I guess what's alarming there is the, the potential for effects that might not appear necessarily related to getting the jab per se, but just natural occurring events like stroke and cardiovascular disease or any other um, you know, potential medical problem that you might have in the future. Because it might not be right away that you have that problem. You know, it might not be a, uh, an acute effect, but it might be more of a chronic effect. So, and how do you and um, how do you know that over time? You know, like that's exactly the the type of thing which 
just you know these things occur naturally as you say anyway so there's no mm-hmm. there's no way to know that this is actually a problem for us you're right which is the problem really isn't it that's the problem yeah has this paper been well received like what's been the sort of the thoughts and feelings around it in your sort of neck of the woods yeah well it's more of a he came on a, a radio interview in in canada and came out with it because he was quite alarmed when he saw the data. So he was all pre, pre-print, right? I mean, everything's happening so fast. These vaccines were rolled out so quickly. And this is just recent, relatively recent data. And you know, it was like a five-minute snippet on, on a radio program, and, but it went viral. And since then, there's been a massive smear campaign that's, that's, been, that's been put up against um the professor and you know he's yeah he's got a new he's got a fake twitter account that's been put up he's not even on social media but now now apparently he is um and he's yeah i mean uh he's had uh you know threats against his life and yeah um it's a lot lots of censorship yeah yeah. wow paul well that's uh it's not, really not a happy one to end on. Not a happy one to end on. No. Well, hey, look. Um, Sorry, but hey, the, the 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 key message is, folks, just uh, please please do your own homework and your own research on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Paul, yeah. you are like one of the most reasonable people that I've met. You know, and I've always really valued your opinion and your advice in and around just all things, obviously, training, nutrition. Um, so, you know, that obviously transfers to other areas. So you're not an unreasonable individual, I think is what I'm trying to say. So people will take from it what they will. But if they're interested, yeah. then it's good to sort of know that there are others out there who might have similar sort of thoughts and feelings. Sometimes it's people quite like that anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, sure. Stay, stay, stay safe, stay, stay, stay healthy, stay well, everyone. Absolutely. Now I'm just about to go and do a uh, 5K park run. What kind, nice. what kind of hit session will that be, Paul? I'm going to run to warm up there, do it, and come back. Wow. Sounds like a low-intensity, steady-state L1, L2 kind of you know, fat-burning session. Just yeah, Probably. Although yeah. my heart rate will like jump from 60 to 170 in about two minutes and just stay there. Ooh, wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that's-, <laughs> that's interesting, right? I talked to James O'Keefe about it, the cardiologist, and he was like, don't even worry, you're just an outlier. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to take that and go. It's one of the really interesting things of my uh, my physiology. There you go, Paul. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Also, yeah. yeah. What's your max heart rate? Max heart rate. I think max I've seen is maybe 183. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I've had to change all my you, zones on Garmin. You on a steady state exercise at 170? Yeah. Like one, one, six, maybe one, six, five. And I can have a conversation and it feels like super easy, which is the interesting yeah, thing. You're super. Uh, you're a diesel. Yeah. You're for sure a diesel. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that bodes well for my 100 kilometers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Paul, yeah. thank you for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. And um, so where can people okay. find you? Um, you can find me probably, uh, you know, if you do if you put my name in, I've got a little, little bit of a website. If you want to get in, get in touch with me, it's got all my, so yeah, paullarson.com cool. and it's, uh, it's got a contact form. So get in touch me, touch with me through that. And you can see all my projects, athletic and hit science on there. Brilliant. And are you taking uh, coaching clients right now? Are you full up? Uh, just some, you know, elite, elite individuals. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so just you know, professionals and professionals and those that, that can afford me, Mickey. Brilliant. <laughs> Otherwise, use Athletica and I will, 
I promise to help you um, yeah, get your Athletica account out and you can ask me questions every once in a while. So that's an inexpensive way to use my coaching services. That's fantastic, Paul. You've got all the options. Thanks so much, Prof. Pleasure. Thank you, Mickey. Alright team, hopefully you enjoyed that, Um, I certainly did and it was great to catch up with Paul after about 9 months and just to sort of see where he's at, where things are at with him in Canada and sort of his plans for the future and you'll know that I chatted to Brianna Stubbs, actually that came out a couple of weeks ago and she is currently using the athletica.ai platform to help build her training in and around her Kona campaign. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. And next week on the podcast, those of you who listen to Fitter Radio will remember that Paul Lawson, prof, always came along with Plues, who is Dan Plues. And Dan has been on the show before. And this time, Dan and I have a good old conversation, just the two of us, answering your questions that we got from uh, his Endura IQ audience and um, we just have a good old conversation so I thought it would be quite fun to have the prof and the plues sort of side by side in subsequent weeks of the Wikipedia podcast. Until then though you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin where I'm just sort of doing my day-to-day thing uh, or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to any number of my online nutrition plans. Monday's Matter though is closed. Uh, we've, we're into week three now and it's all, you know, everyone's gone through their first um, fortnight when the main construct of the plan sort of rolls out and things are going great. But you can catch Monday's Matter again in the new year. So I'm once the spring edition sort of wraps up, I'll be working on finalising the new year plan, which I'm already excited about. But anyway, um, I do have my athlete plan, my keto longevity plan. I do have my evergreen fat loss plans for both men and or women and if you're wanting to support the podcast signing up to my recipe platform access which provides you with access to my members only facebook group where we do a weekly forum you can pick my brain on any of your nutrition related questions and you get access to my recipes which I'm updating um, on a weekly basis um, which is something that I really enjoy doing and that's just a great way to support the podcast and also connect with me or if you're in the market for an individual consultation you can also book on my website as well Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And until next week, guys, have a fab week. See you later.